All right, take your Bible, if you would. 1 Corinthians 15 is our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ the first fruits is the message. We're going to be looking at the Feast of First Fruits as it relates to the resurrection. This is one of the Feast of Israel on their calendar given by God. Let's see if we can get it up there. Wow, there it goes again. Okay, you get to control it from the back. All right, so... In Leviticus 23, there are seven feasts of Israel laid out there. There are three spring feasts. One happens in the late spring, early summer, and then three fall feasts. If you look up at the screen for a second, you'll notice in the month of Nisan, which was the biblical month of Abib, it became the first of months for Israel. The first of their religious calendar is Passover. Jesus died on the Passover. He was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he rose on the Feast of First Fruits. So we've been talking about the Feast of Passover. We talked about Lamb Selection Day last Sunday, which is what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And people would take a lamb into their household, and they would have that lamb all week, and the lamb would die at the end of the week. On unleavened bread, Jesus was buried. That would be on that Sabbath. And then he rose again from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. These are the spring feasts that have already been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's pray right now. Father, thank you so much for all the precious people that have come on this Resurrection Sunday morning. And and, and indeed, you are alive. And because you live, we will live also. We know that you were fulfilling a calendar, God's calendar, God's daytimer. And you fulfilled it to a T. And you fulfilled the imagery that's painted in the Old Testament about the Passover lamb and the blood of the lamb and the fact that judgment would pass over those who had that blood applied to their houses. And you led your people out on the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Egyptians were burying their firstborn and it's amazing to think that later in history, your firstborn would be buried on that same day. And then he rose again on the Feast of Firstfruits guaranteeing the rest of the harvest. We know you have a calendar We know that you have a day set when he will come again. And Lord, we want to be tuned into that biblical truth, that reality for our lives. So lead us now by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was on the telephone with a family this morning that's been a longtime part of our congregation. And they've had two tragedies happen on Good Fridays. They lost a grandchild, a five-year-old, on Good Friday some years back. And then they just got some news that um, a great-nephew was driving his car up in the Wrightwood area, up in the mountains, on Good Friday, and he swerved to avoid a young man that was on a skateboard, and he swerved and crashed his car, and he died. And so, you know, for a while, they had him attached to machines and stuff, and they finally uh, had to go ahead and pull the plug. And so um, he died on Good Friday and two deaths, and you're kind of wondering, you know, what in the world's going on? This family's been through so much. Simultaneously, we've had a longtime member of our congregation who's been waiting on a heart, and he's, his name is Kirk, and he's in his 50s right now. And 
his heart was operating at a very small percentage and you know, most of it had died off because of various things. And so all of a sudden he ended up in Loma Linda Hospital recently and they elevated him to the top of the heart transplant list, uh, just you know, hoping and praying that he would get a heart. And so it turned out that all of a sudden a heart was available for Kirk. And um, so Kirk got a new heart late last night. They started to work on him at 10 p.m., and it went into the morning past midnight, and I think they concluded about 5.30 this morning. And they said that the heart is working well. And so Kirk, they were ready. They said if he didn't have a heart by like Tuesday, they were going to have to give him one of those mechanical hearts because things were not looking good, but this heart became available. So Kirk got his new heart on Resurrection Sunday morning. It was pretty amazing. So then we heard through the grapevine of phone calls and prayers that have been going back and forth that he got the heart of a teenager. And uh, the, so we started to wonder, okay, the family member of this, this church member uh, died on a good Friday. He's a teenager. And then we have a church member who got a new heart on a Sunday early Sunday morning, and we started asking the question, is there a connection here? And we, we don't know, we're not sure, it may not be, but either way, it's quite an amazing thing. And I was on the phone with um, uh, the member of our congregation who lost the great nephew, and she said, you know, we've lost two family members on a Good Friday, but she said, it's pretty amazing, Pastor Michael, that even in death, there's hope for life. And there's someone who received a heart. Actually, you know, this has happened a couple times this weekend. And uh, it's amazing. So I went back and I was looking at my notes. Um, and I, I was curious this week, always going into Resurrection Week, I, I try to see, you know, what people are saying about life and death issues. And I shared this with the, the uh, Sunrise Service I went back and I looked at an interview that was given by Patrick Swayze. How many of you know who Patrick Swayze is? So Patrick Swayze was a very well-known actor in the last several decades, probably best known for the movie Ghost, and good-looking guy, very you know athletically fit and so forth. And I was shocked to, I turned on the television and I was watching Barbara Walters interview him and he didn't look so good, and he was 56 at the time. And it turned out that Patrick Swayze had pancreatic cancer, which is, uh, you know, very, very dangerous. And so um, he was being interviewed, and Barbara Walters asked him how he was doing, and he was going through chemo. And the doctor said, you know, at best he had about two years to live. I was shocked to discover as I was kind of reviewing these notes that all of this happened in 2009. I mean, time just flies, doesn't it? That's almost seven years ago. So Barbara Walters interviewed him at the end of 2008, early 2009. And she ended the interview by saying, you know what, they were trying to be positive. She said, I'm going to come back in a couple years and interview you. And Swayze's reply was, I'll be here. I'll be here. And then he said, maybe not. Well, he didn't make it. He died in September of that next year, 2009, the cancer took him, and Patrick Swayze's gone. But at the end of this interview, Barbara Walters couldn't help it, so she went to this movie, Ghost. And, you know, if you guys knew about the phenomenon of Ghost, it won Best Screenplay, I think it was 1990, Whoopi Goldberg, 
Best Supporting Actress. And I even heard stories of people who were watching the films 10, the film 10, 20, even over 100 times to bring some solace to their lives about losing loved ones. That's not the place to find your theology, by the way. The movie was not theologically correct, but it was quite a compelling story. It was about a man who works in the accounting banking industry, and his best friend betrays him because he starts to discover information that his friend is, is laundering money. So it ends up that his best friend is responsible for his death, but the movie's story is that he's able to come back as a ghost. His spirit hangs around. He's able to learn how to manipulate his environment to the degree that he can avenge his own death. And there's a great scene in the movie where you know, he's, he's learned to control his environment. He's causing things to happen. His friend knows it's him, but he can't do anything about it. And the friend kind of falls back into this window, and the window comes down, and it's a piece of glass that goes right into the guy. And all of a sudden, his ghost comes out. And he, and he sees his friend, and they begin a little bit of dialogue. And all of a sudden, one of the great scenes in movie-making history, these black demonic figures come out of the ground. <laughs> Sound like the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> and they pull this guy down into what is supposed to be hell. And he goes, <laughs> Wonderful. Cinema. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyway. <laughs> All that to say, Barbara Walters said, you know, that great scene at the end of the movie, Swayze, you know, he definitely wasn't he was sleeping with his girlfriend. This is not all theologically correct, but because he's a good guy in the movie, he ends up in the light. So he's kind of going off into this light, which is supposed to represent heaven. And he looks at his girlfriend and he says, Molly, it's amazing. You take the love with you. And she's in tears and he's walking off into this light and Barbara Walters replays the scene to Swayze as if to say, do you believe that? And Swayze says, it's a great line, isn't it? Now he said that he believed that souls probably lived on in the interview. He'd gotten hundreds of letters from supporters People, he said he prayed. I do not know what happened to Patrick Swayze's soul. But my point is, is that there's this interest, and certainly we understand why, in the afterlife. Is there an afterlife? Uh, you know, if there is an afterlife, and if the Bible is true, and by the way, just so you know, the Bible emphatically says that there's life beyond the grave, no, no, like, do you have to try to find an obscure verse somewhere? No. The Bible says over and over again in the Old and New Testament that there's life after death. So that's what you need to know right now. Paul, in Philippians 1, said to, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Paul believed that when he died physically, he would be with the Lord. And he didn't even call it death. He called it a departure. How many of you travel? Raise up your hand. Okay, so when you're looking at that little board and you're looking at departures and arrivals, you know, you're always looking for your flight number and you're wondering, is the flight on time? And uh, a departure is, you're going somewhere. Paul called death a departure. The question is, do you know where you're going? You know, I have 
I have stood before many groups of people over the years and watched coffins go into the ground. I've seen holes cut off, cut out for those coffins. And there's always that lingering question about whether or not that's the end of the story when dirt goes over that coffin or the lid shuts. Is that it? Is that the end of the story? Or is there hope of a resurrection? And the amazing thing about that cutout in the ground is that according to the scripture, that's not an end, that's a doorway. And the question is, where are you going when you depart from this place? Jesus didn't claim just to teach about the resurrection or give insight to the resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked, do you believe this? Your belief about what happens after you die is huge. And I think you all realize that it's important because the statistics on death are quite impressive. <laughs> one out of every one of us is going to die. I know it's hard to take. But unless Jesus comes in our lifetime, we're going to face this question of, is there a destination? Is there a heaven to inherit and a hell to shun? That's the question whenever we're dealing with the subject of resurrection. And, you know, it's coming up over and over in our society because we see death all around us and we try to forget it. But the most recent event now is this terrible terrorist attack in Brussels. I think it killed 31 people at an airport, almost 300 wounded people now, uh, you know, in critical condition. And, uh, you know, I read on Fox News just recently that a couple of Americans were killed in that attack. And they're the Schultz family, as if I recollect correctly, a 30-year-old and a 29-year-old wife gone in a moment. You're at the airport looking at your departures and arrivals, and now you're gone. That's how the life that we face is. And the question, of course, becomes, is there a hope beyond the grave that we can truly hold on to? I'm not talking about pie-in-the-sky stuff. I'm not talking about resurrection being a metaphor for some deeper struggle between the Jews and the Romans. If you want to talk about metaphors, you can have that, and you can go study that in philosophy. I'm going to the beach. I'm here because I believe that Jesus Christ died, that he died and his body was clinically dead, and that he lives, and that because he lives, I will live also. Look, if I didn't believe that, I'd be doing something else, folks. There's plenty of options in Southern California, as we all know. So here's the um, biblical calendar. If, you, if somebody back there can move it along, because I'm not sure I can. Um, anyway, so here's the spring feast. Uh, Passover falling on Abib or Nisan 14. That's when Jesus died. The Feast of Unleavened Bread went on for a week after that. And then first fruits fell within that holiday on the Sunday. And then you begin to count 50 days, or 
It's actually seven Sabbaths, so it's seven times seven, it's 49, and you get to the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot or the Feast of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days. They were told then to wait 10 days for the Holy Spirit. That's 50. Pente is 50. You count 50 days from the Feast of First Fruits and you get to the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. All of this was on God's biblical calendar and Jesus dies on the feast of first fruits. You might ask, well, Pastor Michael, why are you talking about first fruits? Because first fruits comes up, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we want to turn in our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 1 Corinthians 15, the most exhaustive chapter on the resurrection. In the New Testament, first fruits is referenced at least seven times. First fruits refers to the first people saved in a certain region. It, it can refer to the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives that were a kind of first fruits unto God because we've been saved by the preaching of his word. The 144,000 are a type of first fruits. And here's simply put what it represents. The barley harvest in Israel was the first harvest in the springtime. And what they would do is they would mark certain um, areas of the crop. They would mark what they call sheaves, and they would mark it as an offering to God. And what God instructed in Leviticus 23 is that before you do anything, I want you to give me the first fruits of your field. And so what they would do is they would go out into this field and they had a special field in Israel. If you can move to the next slide. And it was called the Ashes Valley. It was a, a field especially set apart and watched over by the, the religious elite of Israel. And what they would do is they would take from this field and they would mark uh, certain areas of the field with red cord. These would be the sheaves set apart for the Lord. And then during this weekend, when you have the feast of Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits, they would get ready at sundown on unleavened bread to glean these sheaves. They would take them, they would mill them down and they would take them, put them in a basket and present them to the Lord. It was a first fruits offering to the Lord. They would actually wave it before the Lord. And the first fruit offering was to guarantee the rest of the harvest. When you saw that first fruit, you were saying, aha, we're going to have a crop. And that crop is kind of guaranteed by that first growth. And Jesus is called the first fruits of those who are asleep. And here's what it means in this imagery. It means because he rose from the dead and presented himself, if you will, to the Father, he guarantees the rest of the harvest coming in. He's kind of the down payment of the resurrection. Now, here's what they were saying in the church at Corinth. It was a church that was steeped in paganism and Greek philosophy. And the Greek philosophers kind of had a muddied view of the afterlife. They, they believed the soul probably went on but they weren't quite sure what happened to your soul. And they did not like the idea of a physical resurrection. In fact, you would say it mystified them in, in many ways because they said, look, what's this idea of corpses rising from the dead and how does this work anyway? And in Greek dualism or Greek philosophy, what, they, what the teachers were saying, and this goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, is no, you want, to, you want to move on from your body. Your body's a type of prison. 
You don't want to experience a resurrection in the afterlife. And I think in some ways they, they were thinking of the Walking Dead movies. You know, are people, people are going to come out of the grave. It's not going to be pretty. You know, you know, it doesn't sound like great news to me. Band-aids everywhere, you know. Is that what you Christians are teaching? But no, because you think about it. Everybody who's gone into the grave for just maybe a couple of decades, or in many cases, hundreds and hundreds of years, their body is, has decomposed. What's going to come out of the grave corresponds, here's the image that Paul uses, he uses a seed plant analogy. What goes into the ground corresponds to the seed, but what comes out, even though there's a correspondence, is going to be different. When you plant something in your garden, you put a seed in the ground, the seed's not very impressive, is it? It's just this little thing. But what comes out of the ground is like this beautiful flower. That's the resurrection image. What goes into the ground corresponds to what goes out of the ground, but what comes out of the ground is in many ways a new creation. People say, well, what if somebody was eaten by a shark? <laughs> They're going to come out <laughs> missing parts, blown up in a war, uh, decomposed. How, how is this going to work? How, people say this, how could God do such a thing? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. He, he made everything with his words, spoke the universe into existence. I believe he could call your corpse out and remake it so that it's new again. I've been praying for years for five additional inches to be added to my height. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I just want to be over six, six something, whatever that means. <laughs> you believe God will honor those prayers? I don't know. But you will be you in the resurrection, but you'll be a better, new and improved you. Pretty cool, huh? And it appears that you will not even need a name tag. Hello, my name is. It appears that in the resurrection, we will know just as we are known. You know, people ask often, will we know each other in the resurrection? I love Walter Martin's response. Well, you won't be dumber then than you are now. Is that you? <laughs> However, the good news is it appears that we are going to be recreated in our prime. Praise the Lord. People who are 18 are going, what? People who are older are going, oh, yeah. <laughs> prime. New knees, new back, new neck. Less fat. Oh, <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Young people are saying, slow it down, old man. Got a life to live here. Now, this is verse 12. That was all preamble. <laughs> we'll try to move quick, quickly. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached, and they had believed in the gospel, that's why there was a church in Corinth, that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say, not all, but some, how are you now saying there is no resurrection of the dead? So a church was planted. Everybody believed that the resurrection was part of that. If you look back at chapter 15, verse 3, 
Paul talks about that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, verse 4, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what they said they believed. A church was planted based upon that gospel declaration. And then some people in the church, and this never happens, but this is way back in the day in Corinth, were saying, oh, I don't think there's a resurrection. And Paul's like, What? The reason that a church was founded is because you said you believed that Christ had risen. Without the resurrection, folks, there is no Christianity. There isn't. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, Christianity is false because Christ prophesied his own resurrection. He said, we're going to Jerusalem, boys. They're going to kill me. They're going to mock me. They're going to mock spit at me, scourge me, kill me, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He said it over and over and over again. He prophesied it. Therefore, if it's not true, Jesus cannot be the Son of God. He cannot be a true prophet. He cannot be the way, the truth, and the life, and therefore, you can't put your trust in him. If there is no resurrection, if you've been watching the History Channel lately and you get some scholar from some school who says, the resurrection is actually a metaphor for the deeper struggle between the Romans and the Jews around 65. That's how they talk too. Turn it off. The resurrection is not a metaphor. A clinically dead body came out of the grave and he had already proved he could do it. He raised a little girl to life. He touched a coffin that was passing by in processional and that dude got up. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Imagine being at that funeral. <laughs> Have an extra turkey sandwich at the post thing. Anyway, wow. Then Lazarus is in the tomb. Four days. Even the sisters say, Lord, by this time... King James, it stinketh in there. <laughs> and Jesus said, <laughs> roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And by the way, after that, and that's early in this Passover week, they wanted to kill Lazarus because they didn't want people talking to him about resurrection. But I would want to know, wouldn't you want to interview Lazarus? Dude, <laughs> what did you see? Right, I have coffee with him and then coffee with Jesus or Jesus first, then Lazarus. All the city was stirred. Look, he had already proven he could do this and he said, destroy this temple, his body, and in three days, I will raise it up again. Paul's saying, that's the story that you guys said you believe. So how are some among you saying, oh, we don't believe there's a resurrection now? Look at the argument. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, 13, not even Christ has been raised. If you're denying the resurrection, then how can you believe that Christ was raised? Well, some people argue, well, Jesus is in a, in a different category. You know, maybe he was just a spirit and he appeared to be physical. This is some of the early heresies that went around. Or maybe because he's divine, he's in a different category. No, Jesus was fully human, he died. 100% man. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead either. This is the logical argument. And if Christ has not been raised, 14, Paul says, then our preaching is vain. The word vain means empty. And your faith is also vain. If this is true, if there's no resurrection, what I'm doing now is vain. And what you're doing now, if you have faith, is vain. The word vain is empty, 
or useless. It's useless. Anybody who's going to a church and really not convinced or maybe they just think, oh, this is just something I've done since I was a kid, but I don't really believe it. Then Paul says, in many ways, that's just useless. It, get, it gets worse, 15. Moreover, we have even found to be been found, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God. If there's no resurrection, then we're doing this against God, that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Christian apologist Josh McDowell says, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history, close quote. Wilbur Smith comments, it is what we may call one of the great fundamental doctrines of and convictions of the church, the resurrection, and so penetrates the literature of the New Testament that if you lifted it out of every passage in which a reference is made to the resurrection, you would have a collection of writings so mutilated that what remained could not be understood. The whole New Testament and the Old Testament points to this resurrection. I know my Redeemer lives, says Job, in all of his pain. I know he lives. And at the last, I will stand upon the earth and I will see him in a new body. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what Job said. For if the dead are not raised, 16, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Greek word means profitless, aimless. You are still in your sins. Jesus said, John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. So here's the deal. Here's Paul's argument. If there is no resurrection, then everyone you know who's claimed to be a Christian and gone into a grave have died in their sins. Paul is not arguing for atheism. Please listen closely. He is arguing that if there's no resurrection, everyone who's died allegedly in Christ has died in their sins and therefore are under the condemnation of God. He's not saying then atheism is true. What he's saying is that then there's no redemption because then there's been no payment made for sin. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions and he was raised because or for our justification. Romans 4.25. The resurrection is God's stamp or seal of approval that Jesus is who he said he was. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, verse 4. The resurrection is God or heaven's declaration that Jesus is who he said he was. How would you know? You had would-be messiahs all over the landscape in these early days, and they continue to our day. There's a lot of people claiming to be the messiah, the savior. How would you really know that someone who made that claim, and even when you watch him die on a cross, your conclusion could be, well... How is he different from anybody else? He's just dying. Romans are, you know, they're putting nails into his hands and his feet. He's dead. But three days later, he lives. How many of you saw the movie Risen? Raise up your hand for a second. 
It's worth seeing. It's the story, it's, it's a fictional story, but what it does is it, it, it brings to life a potential character, and his name is Claudius in the film. And so basically what happens is he's at the crucifixion site, and he's watching the nails be driven into the hands and the feet of Jesus and the robbers, and he goes there, and you know they're, they're, they're going to break the legs of the crucifixion victims. This is hard to take, but this is what they did. So you couldn't push it, yourself up on the cross to get a breath anymore, and it just killed you quicker. They wanted to get the bodies off the crosses in time for the Sabbath, and so all of a sudden, they break the legs, and they're going to come and break Jesus' legs, but then they notice that he's dead. They're a little surprised. So remember what happens. They take the spear, and they thrust it into his side, and blood and water spill out. And in the movie, Claudius, he looks into the dead eyes of Christ, and there's like blood in his eye, and he's like, that dude is dead. And down from the cross he goes, he's obviously dead. Joseph of Arimathea musters up the courage to ask for the body. He wraps it in linen, puts it in his own new tomb with the help of Nicodemus, and Claudius goes and sits in a hot tub and has some wine and tries to forget about the events of the day as Rome killed a few more victims. But all of a sudden, a few days later, this, this contingent from the Sanhedrin comes and they say, uh, the body of this Jesus would be Messiah's missing. And Claudius is given the task to try to track down what's happening. So the whole rest of the movies, really, I'm ruining it for you all now, but <laughs> quarter of your hands went up. Yeah, you, anybody have somebody like that in your family or a friend? Hey, you should really go see this movie. So here's what happens. It opens in 1942, and then the people will have been there, and you're like, shut up, man, okay. I, so I'm doing that right now. <laughs> anyway, the whole rest of the movie, he's tracking down. Got to do it for the purposes of the sermon. And he's trying to get this information, and finally he finds out where the apostles of Christ are. So he bangs through the door, and he rushes in, and he, and he finds them all, only he's shocked to see that the man that he saw with blood in his eye that was dead and taken off the cross is sitting there very much alive. And Claudius, it's a great scene in the movie because the sword slides out of his hand and he drops the sword and he tries to find a wall and he begins to slide down the wall. And he can't even speak because what he's just seen defies everything he believes in. He's this hardened, you know, centurion type guy and he's been confronted with something he cannot make sense of. That this Messiah, that everybody was saying was different in some way, is alive. You see, if he's not alive, then you've died in your sins. Everybody has died in their sins, according to Paul. How can he be interceding for us in heaven? Romans 8:34, always living to make intercession for us if he's not alive. And Paul says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, or that's a metaphor for dying in the Bible, in Christ have perished. All those who said they trusted in Christ, they've perished. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But Paul says, no resurrection, they've perished. And everything's gone. Theodore Dostoevsky, I think is how you say his name, is considered one of the great Russian writers. I probably messed up his name. He was arrested in 1849 for plotting against Tsar Nikolai I. He was sentenced to death and blindfolded and taken out in freezing weather to be shot by a firing squad. And at the last moment, his sentence was commuted to exile at hard labor. 
After his release from prison in 1854, he abandoned his revolutionary ideals and became a Christian. He, he spoke after this all occurred, and he said, quote, the certainty of death fills us with dread, but the uncertainty of what follows dead is the most, death is the most dreadful anguish in the world. It is this uncertainty and fear of death that Paul has in mind when he writes about the sting of death. In other words, what he's saying is that when they put me before that firing squad, I was afraid to die, but I was even more fearful of what was happening next. Where would I go? Where would I wake up when my eyes opened on the quote-unquote other side? Where would I be? If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, verse 19, Paul says, we are of all men to be, all men most to be pitied. Paul says, pity me. You know, because I went to this town and they beat me and I was a night and day in the open sea and then I went to this town and they threw stones at me and I was almost dead and I'll show you the brand marks of Christ on my back and then I went to this town and these people threw me out of town and these people were plotting for my death and I spent decades running all over the Roman world saying that Jesus Christ is alive but if he's not, please pity me above all men because what I've done, I've done for nothing then. If your argument is true, Corinthians, and there's no resurrection, then I've just spent the last several decades putting my life on the line for nothing at all. But the man who's talking knows something about resurrection. That's why he can say these next victorious words. But now, 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And here's our word. And he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. You might say, well, how could Paul be so certain? How could he make such an emphatic statement? Uh, he saw him on the road to Damascus. And just a side note, and I think most of you know this, he did not expect to see him. He had letters from the chief priest and he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He hated the movement, hated everything it stood for. And there he was heading to Damascus and he saw a bright light. He described it brighter than the noonday sun. Fell down, he was blinded. And there was an interchange. And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the words came. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What shall I do, Lord? Go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Paul said, he appeared to me last as one untimely born. I was reading a commentary written on the feast and untimely born. There's been all these different conjectures about it. But this commentary said the imagery was that of a fig tree, which would occasionally yield prematurely ripened figs out of season. These early figs were few and rare. Paul viewed himself as one of these whom God had graciously saved before the final harvest, close quote. Interesting. Here's Paul saying emphatically, Christ is risen because he saw him. It says in our very chapter, if you go back to just verse nine, or go back to eight, it says, last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, 15, eight, he appeared to me also, I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. Popeye stole that from Paul. (laughs) And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. In that section, if you just peek back for a second, Paul says that Jesus, verse 6, chapter 15, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. They're still alive. Some have died. Some have fallen asleep. If you don't believe me, Paul says, ask them. That's not what you do if you've concocted a story. And skeptics don't know what to do with Saul, who became Paul, because he wasn't in it. He had nothing to gain. He was a well-known Pharisee, very well-to-do, very liked by his people, and he gave up everything believing in this truth of resurrection. In fact, he was beheaded by Nero in the late 60s AD, going to his grave saying, he lives, he lives, he lives. You can kill me, but when you do, I will depart and be with Christ, which is far better. This is what Paul believed. This is what the church has believed throughout the ages, That because he lives, we will live also. He's the first fruits, the down payment. He guarantees the rest of the harvest coming in, and the rest of the harvest is you and me. We're the rest of the crop. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep, and we're going to follow in his train. We're the rest of the harvest. And he was waved before the Father as an offering, a sweet-smelling aroma unto God. And God accepted that offering, and because of that, the rest of the harvest is coming in, And we are going to live too. And he, amen? Yeah, you can get excited. It's all right. It's not the sunrise service anymore. It's cool. And our body will be made like unto his body. And he will do this by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So the women went to the tomb. As it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, This is the Feast of First Fruits. It's Sunday. Mary Magdalene, who had been delivered, by the way, from demonic possession, seven demons, according to Luke 8. She came to the grave living a life of gratitude, and she came, and something amazing happened that morning. An angel came down. The Bible says his appearance looked like lightning. Can you imagine meeting someone who looked like lightning? Whoa! Turn it down, man! And he rolled away the stone and sat upon it. He didn't roll away the stone to let Jesus out. He rolled away the stone to let them in. So they could have a view of the empty tomb. And John and Peter ran to the tomb. And all John had to do is look at what was going on there. And the Bible says he believed. Some of you are saying, I wasn't there. I'm an evidentialist. I want proof. Well, there was a guy named Thomas who wasn't there in the original uh, time that Jesus appeared and the apostles shared with him and they didn't have much faith by the way the women came and they're saying oh they're telling them these, these ladies are crazy but at least the ladies were at the tomb the great apostles were hiding behind closed doors praise God for godly women amen get over to the tomb <laughs> what are you doing and then They went and shared, and the apostles thought it was crazy, but then Peter and John ran to the tomb, and then Jesus began to appear to people, and they were holding on to his feet and worshiping him, according to Matthew 28. See, here's the truth. Since by a man, Adam came death, 21. By a man, and this is to defeat any notions that he was just a, a spirit, 
or he wasn't fully human, by a man, Jesus also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, how many? All die. So in Christ, and I think the in Christ is probably a reference here to those who are asleep, Christians, although there will be two resurrections, we all know, all will be made alive. One resurrection will be a resurrection to life, John 5, and another resurrection will be one to condemnation. Can you imagine experiencing a resurrection? And this is what the Bible teaches. So in some sense, you get a new body, but you're an unbeliever, and your resurrection is actually to judgment. So instead of walking into life on that day, you walk into judgment on that day. That's incredible. You see, this is what Jesus says. He's going to call to the grave, and people are going to come out. I will ransom them from the power of the grave, Hosea 13, 14. I will redeem them from death, O death. I will be your plagues, says God. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Paul is not teaching universalism. He is simply saying, if, in, if you're in Christ, you're going to rise. Look at 23. But each in his own order. Some of you might be wondering, well, when's this supposed to happen? Each in his own order, 23. Christ, the first fruits. And after that, those who are Christ's, when, when's it going to happen? At his coming. See the word coming there? That's the Greek word parousia. And it speaks of an arrival of a king or the active presence. And the word, uh, each in his own order, speaks of military rank. Christ is the first to conquer death. He will never die again. And then each in their own rank will follow. And believers will rise at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they will not, the uh, raptured church, 1 Thessalonians 4, will not precede those who have died. So here's how it works. When Jesus returns, his second coming, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So the resurrection and the rapture will be like this, kind of, the dead in Christ first, then the rapture church who deal with the end time scenario, and this will happen at his coming. When Christ comes, the resurrection happens. This is the word of the Lord. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you, you've heard these things and you know that the Bible is set apart by prophecy and you understand that these prophetic truths came to pass. But then sometimes you move into these realms and you go, uh, could it really be? Could it really be that dead people are going to rise and we're going to get new bodies? It sounds almost too good to be true, but it's the word of the Lord. It's what God said will happen. It's what Jesus said will happen. And the question is, will you believe? Then comes the end, 24, we're just about done. When he delivers up the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, this is the divine son saying, Father, you gave me this kingdom and I give it back to you. When he has abolished or destroyed all rule or dominion, all authority and power, including principalities and powers, all of them will be crushed. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished or destroyed is death. 
You know, we keep looking around and saying, death keeps winning. It wins again and again and again. Worldwide statistics right now, last I checked, about two people die every second in the world. You know, we look at what's happening in the world right now and we say, my goodness, people are going into eternity. If we watch the clock, you know, as we've been sitting here, do you know, I don't know if you're a mathematician, but that's a lot of people going into eternity. Let me just tell you something. Eternity is way too long to be wrong about your soul. If you're playing Russian roulette with your soul, if you're saying, oh, well, maybe, uh, you know, on that day, I'll just tell God why I didn't believe, and me and God, you know, we're, we're good, you know. No, you're not good. If you have not received Christ into your life, you're not good. You'll die in your sins. And that means you'll die without redemption. And the beauty of our redemption is that God says, I've done it. I demonstrated my love for you in this, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. You can be alive right now, but you must trust him. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains not an island, not a city block, not if he even owned his own country? What will it profit a man if he gains how much? The whole world and forfeits his own soul. Let me ask you a question. If I said to you, I will give you $10 million for your eyes right now, and you knew I had a cashier's check, 10 million bucks, I just want your eyes. Would you give me your eyes? No, because they're precious to you. You see the world through them. Would you give your soul for $10 million? For a city block, for fame and fortune. You know, we hear about these stars that allegedly sold their soul to the devil. Some of these rock stars, they need to hang it up, man. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was kind of a joke, but it's like, dude, don't play another concert. It's not looking good. Anyway, All this stuff is temporary. But God's kingdom is eternal. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Get this. The grim reaper is going to meet his own grim reaper. You know, we often see the grim reaper is that hooded dark figure. where He's got the, what is that thing? Machete or sickle, right? And, and everybody's fearful of death. And one day, death, as scary as he looks, is going to go, and the light of the world will vanquish him. Death will be destroyed because of the cross, because of the resurrection. And the Bible says there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, for the former things will have what? Passed away. Behold, I make all things new. And these words... Revelation 21 are faithful and they are true. Would you bow your hearts? Father, thank you so much for this Resurrection Sunday. Jesus, thank you that you're alive. What you went through to secure my salvation is humbling, amazing, incredible. And the fact, 
Father, that Paul said he loved me and gave himself for me is amazing love. The gospel is about love. But it's also about justice. When our Savior is hanging on the cross, it's God's love on display, but it's also God's justice on display. And the sky grew dark and the earth quaked. And he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thank you, Lord, that you went through that for us. You took the penalty that we deserved at the cross. This is your love and your justice satisfied. You paid your own justice price to redeem your people out of the slave market of sin. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Final illustration. We are uh, interacting right now with a ministry called Destiny Rescue. They're going into countries where sex slavery is happening. It's a very ugly industry, but boys and girls, especially in third world countries, are given the promise that they can go work and support their family, and they're brought into brothels, and they're exploited at incredibly young ages, and it is ugly. People are paying big money for this, and it's part of the ugliness of our world. This ministry goes in, and they they raise funds as a mission organization, and they go to these brothels, and they identify underage children under the age of 18, and they pay a ransom price to get them out of the brothel. They have to pay the, to put it bluntly, the pimp to buy this person out. And then when they get the person out, they, they kind of watch what's going on in the place, and they pay the money, and they bring the person off, and they say, no, we don't want to do anything with you. We, we want to set you free. We bought you because we have an exit plan for you. You can be free. Here's what we want to do for you. And then that person has a moment of decision. That person can say, yes, I will trust you, even though I don't know you. I don't understand why you're doing this. But it certainly seems like love that you would pay this money and risk your own life for me. And they can take that opportunity and try to get out. Or in many cases, because of fear or whatever else, they say, no, I don't want to. And they go back to that life of slavery. You see, the redemption price has been paid for you. The price has been paid in full at the cross. And Jesus brings people out and he says, will you go with me? And though we have not seen him, we love him. We see his work for us. And the knock comes at the door. Will you come? Will you come to me? And then you must decide. See, the Bible teaches you're not redeemed just because the price was paid. You're not redeemed. Just because he wants to bring you out of slavery, you're not redeemed. You must say yes. The Bible teaches that God will not repent for you and he will not believe for you. You must do that. And this can be your day. So if you're here, maybe you haven't been to church for a long time. Maybe you have been skeptical about the Christian faith. Maybe you've been up and down. Maybe you're a prodigal. You've been wandering. Well, now's the time to settle it. This would be a great day for a new beginning, wouldn't it? 
a Resurrection Sunday to say, I believe. So if you want to do that this morning, this is your opportunity. And I would encourage you to pray. It starts with a prayer, and it's just something simple. And I'm just going to look you in the eye when I say this. Here's what it is. You must say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe who you are. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose to defeat death. And I'm going to turn from my doing it my own way. I'm going to turn from my fears, my excuses, and I'm going to put my full trust in you. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't earn your salvation. You can't do enough good things. You must receive a price paid in full. You must say, I will go with you. Wherever you lead, I will follow. If you want to do that this morning, bow your heart right now with me and just say, Father, I believe. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for me and rise from the dead. I turn from my sin and I put my trust in you. Please save me, Lord. If you're a prodigal, you might want to just articulate a prayer and say, Lord, I want to come back and follow you. I want my life to count for something eternal. I want to be an ambassador of this good news. Father, I know you're hearing every heart's prayer. And then for this precious congregation, thank you for all they are doing to share the good news of the hope of Christ. You know, we saw this morning, it's come and see, and then it's go and tell. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ lives. Thank you, Lord, for all you're doing here. May you continue to be glorified in this fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said.